all very much for coming. Thank you, Midtown Scholar, um, and uh, and Tony, uh, thank you. And and thanks really to all of my former students who really helped me with this book um, because they did. And I interviewed some of them, and I interviewed some of their bosses, and um, and some of you are here tonight. So uh, that just makes me actually the luckiest gal in the world. Um, okay, so. The book is called Super Mad at Everything All the Time, which is a line that I cobbed from um, John Mulaney, who is a comedian. And he does not do political comedy, but he said in the course of his last stand-up that he, he really doesn't follow politics, but he couldn't help seeing that everybody was super mad about everything all the time. And then he did four minutes and 38 seconds without mentioning one name and uh, talked about just how angry everybody was. And, and it just so perfectly encapsulated where we are right now culturally. And so I thought, wow, that's a really good name for this book that I wrote about the political media. And so I, I study and have worked in political media for, uh, you know, 30 years. Wow. And, um, and you know, it, it's one of those things where I really thought I had my arms around everything and then in October of 2015, before the presidential primaries, something happened and I realized, holy cats, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And, and this is what happened. I was at my daughter's volleyball practice and I was grading papers because I'm a devoted mom, but I'm not that devoted, you know, to sit and watch her actually practice. Um, so I was grading papers and a guy who was sitting down at the next bleacher over. I saw him, I was, because I have, you know, bifocals because I'm old, but um, I don't know how to use them because I'm dumb. So I was, I was looking like this and I saw that he had turned up and he was holding his iPhone in one hand and he faced me. And he opened his mouth, he made eye contact, he opened his mouth and he said, <laughs> the following, and I'm gonna quote it. Now I went home and I blogged about it, which is how I have an actual record of what it was he said. And his spiel included curse words, and so I don't know everybody here um, how you feel about curse words. So instead of cursing, I have a, a mechanism to use instead, okay? <laughs> now I'm a fan of cursing. This is a totally true story. Um, <laughs> we know, yes, yes you do. Uh, a, a couple years ago, a student handed in his final exam to me, and he said, 78. And I said, do you think you're going to earn a 78 on this exam? And he said, no. That's how many times you dropped the F-bomb this semester? And he handed me a piece of paper that had tick marks all over it, and he said, <laughs> I counted. <laughs> but other people have more delicate and, and, and understandably, you know, solid morals. And so, um, so this is what I'm going to use instead. So. The guy made eye contact with me, I didn't say anything, and this is what he said. I'll tell you what, this country is going to be much better when Donald Trump is president. And I'll tell you what, when Obama was elected, I knew this country was going to fail, and it did. You know why? Because he's not an American, and he don't even salute the troops. I got a friend at Letterkenny Army Depot, and he says Obama don't even salute the troops, and my friend served in Iraq, and he knows that Obama don't even salute the troops, and he's not a real American. And I'll tell you what, I got nothing against women. I like women. My boss is a woman and she don't take no from no one. And I like women, you know what I'm saying? So I don't got no problem with a woman president. Not Hillary, she's shady as But a woman president, I got no problem with that. 
Do you know who would make a good president? Sarah Palin. And at that point I thought, okay. Uh, so a friend has clearly, they're like hiding out there, they're gonna videotape this and put it up on YouTube under like the all caps banner, like liberal college professor goes bonkers, you know, kind of thing. And it's just gonna be viral and horribly embarrassing. And so, um, so I just, I, I was just sitting there with my mouth hanging open and I never said a word. He talked for about four minutes uh, straight. And at the end of it, it just sort of, it was like a hurricane. Like it just stopped, like just as quickly as it started. And he looked at my, my thing of papers and he said, you a teacher? And I just kind of like nodded like that. And he went, that's cool. And he sat back down and got back on his phone again. And so I went home and I blogged about it. And then I went in the next day and I told my students and they said, oh, they thought that was hilarious. And then they said, because many, many ship students, and, and I would actually hazard a guess that most ship students are conservative as opposed to being liberal. This, this idea that college students are all liberals is a, a bit of a canard, um, particularly at Shippensburg University. And so uh, a bunch of them said, you know what though, as funny as that was, he's right. Donald Trump is great. And I was like, okay, what? Wait, what? What do you, what? This is in October of 2015. And it made no sense to me. And they said, yeah, no, 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 he's really good. You should, you really should check out more of what he's saying. I'm like, I think I'm getting a healthy dose of what he's saying. And I asked them, where are you getting this? And they said, okay, we get it from Breitbart, not yet Fox News. They were not on the Trump train at that point, but it was like Breitbart and, um, uh, and Levin and Rush and uh, Drudge. They were all really very pro-Trump. And I thought, well, okay, I'm not reading the same things that you are, but I'm reading stuff. So I thought that we would kind of be speaking the same language. We were not speaking the same language at all. Um, and in fact, I really kind of, in my own mind, I, I canceled out the Breitbart and the Drudge because I thought, well, it's, it's fine because I also don't read the Huffington Post, you know, or Daily Coast or anything like that too. So it's fine. Like I'm, I'm getting solid information from solid places. And the more I talked to them, the more I realized, wait, we are getting our facts from two totally separate places. And, and there are two really big spheres of news and information that are out there now. And they're not equal, okay? This is not like a left versus right. That is absolutely not what's going on. But in order for me to get to that place where I understood like these two different spheres, I had to talk to more people. And so I interviewed about three dozen journalists and politicos and, and academic experts in this to say, I'm, I'm just really not seeing it. Like I don't watch Fox News, but I don't watch MSNBC either. So what am I, you know, what am I missing? And with a lot of crowdsourcing, which is how I have intellectual cover, like you can't blame me for this. I got it from a chick from Axios. Um, you know, with, with all of this information, I sat down and started piecing some things together. And so what I found was that uh, on one side is the mainstream media, and that includes not only um, kind of the, the mainstream media that, that we talk about, you know, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, that sort of thing, but also purposely liberal outlets and purposely conservative outlets too, like the Wall Street Journal and the National Review. You know, they are in this big mainstream media sphere, and this is a big sphere. I mean, if I were to list all of the outlets that are within this sphere, we would be here until next Tuesday, and it would be the world's most boring talk. So, um, so you gotta trust me on that, it's huge. Uh, and then the other sphere is actually, um, I called it the right-wing media circle. And I tried to come up with something really clever and I just couldn't. So I stuck with right-wing media circle. And then as I was doing page proofs, the editor said, you know, right-wing has to be hyphenated. And I went, oh, 
um, because I hadn't. So that was fun. That was three days. Um, so the right-wing media circle is this very tightly closed, non-competitive uh, antidote to everybody else around you. And, and when you start to look at it in terms of that, you're like, oh, well, this is making some more sense. Uh, Fox News is at the epicenter of my right-wing media circle because Fox News was the first to come forward and say, we are conservative on purpose and take that. It is in their mission statement from you know, two years before uh, Fox News even launched. They said, we're gonna, this is what we're gonna do. It's very much on purpose. They were very open about it, um, gesundheit. Uh, and so um, they were so successful that they spawned imitators. And so inside my little right-wing media circle includes the Blaze and Breitbart, Drudge, Sinclair and Salem, Newsmax, Infowars, on the radio, Hannity, Prager, Levin, and Rush, oh my. Uh, the Daily Wire, The Daily Caller, The Washington Examiner, The Western Journal, OAN, and CRTV, and that's it. That's pretty amazing. Now, every now and then, like QAnon, you know, or like 4chan or 8chan, like, wings their way through there. Um, and that's valid. Uh, but that's it. And, and it's really interesting if you think about it, how few of these outlets there are, and in just a minute, I'm gonna tell you how powerful these outlets are too, uh, because they've got some reach, they have some strength to them uh, that is pretty remarkable. Um, so like I said, the, the outlets within my right-wing media circle do not include the Wall Street Journal, the National Review, even um, Jonah Goldberg is starting this new conservative journalism outlet, and that's not gonna be in here either because all of those outlets that I listed, they have these very distinctive qualities that make them something different than everybody else going down. Um, so this is what I came up with. There are sort of four qualities that define all of these outlets. They are specifically ideological. You know, so are left-wing outlets, you know, so are some of the ones who are more conservative. But the second quality that, that separates them is that they are openly oppositional. If you go to all of them, their, their pages or you know, whatever, their mission statement is that they are going to oppose the mainstream media. Now that's a really, just stop for a second and think about that, it's a really different way of approaching journalism. Like it's not journalism, right? Jur you, know, the, the, you, can, you can dislike the New York Times for a hundred different reasons, but you know, in their mission statement, it's not gonna say like, our goal is to bring down Donald Trump. You may think, wow, they spend too much time talking about Donald Trump, and they do spend a lot of time talking about Donald Trump, but that's not in their mission statement. In these guys' mission statements, they say everybody else is liberal, and we're here to provide an antidote to that. Uh, the third quality is that they are far less interested in doing original reporting. Most of them don't do very much original reporting. They really provide a lot of commentary. And uh, the last thing, and this actually is what Sarah Fisher from Axios told me, and this when she did, my I was so excited. Um, my head did not literally explode because it's still here. I hate it when people say that. My head's literally going to explode. I'm like, I should take you to the hospital then um, because you need your head. Um, so uh, this is what she said. She said, you know, all of those outlets, they're non-competitive against one another. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, they're really very self-reinforcing. Now, they want more traffic, right, because that's how media monetization works. You get more eyeballs. You get more listeners. But that's not what they're worried about in terms of reinforcing a narrative. And so one of these guys will posit an idea, and then everybody else will go, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, what he said. And that's how a narrative within the circle kind of bings around, you know, almost like it's a, in a pachinko machine. So 
To give you an idea about the power and reach of my right-wing media circle, here are some numbers that just I, are jaw-dropping. Fox News on cable has been the number one cable news channel for 208 straight months. That's more than 17 years as number one. And by the way, if you're thinking, well, MSNBC is, eh, you know, their ratings have gone up uh, ever since Trump was elected. They actually call that the Trump bump um, because every, all these news organizations are paying so much more attention now to, to President Trump because he's such a huge figure. Um, not only are they the number one cable news channel, they're also just the number one cable channel, period. Over, my husband's heart is just gonna collapse when I say this, ESPN, <laughs> right? Fox News is bigger than ESPN. I know, it's amazing, it is amazing. Um, and then online, because a lot of these outlets are, are digitally native outlets, which means they were born online, um, of the 15 political sites online, the ones with the most unique monthly visitors. There are eight conservative websites, five liberal websites, and two centrist sites. So they're dominating TV, they're dominating radio, they're dominating online space. Now, all of this domination put together, and this I think speaks to kind of how uninterested the American public is in politics writ large, all of that provides this um, kind of airtight filter bubble for about 25 to 30% of the American public. Um, but that's a pretty airtight bubble. And so as I started peeling back the onion layers in order to figure out what was uh, happening here, I, I realized that, that four things happened concomitantly. They happened at the same time, and they also built on each other in order to make this system possible. And so the four things are this. There's been this, the first thing, history. Um, a 50-year slow burn of just shade that's being thrown against the media and government and intellectuals. Um, and all of that was built on one another too. Uh, and by the way, all of this is rooted in some truths, right? So the argument that the media are liberally biased and college professors are liberally biased and, you know, and that the government is too big. There are some truths to that. I mean, you know, I work on a college campus. It's, it can be hard to find conservative members of our faculty. They're there, um, but, uh, but we are a kind of a dominant left sort of uh, institution. And, and the media, there's a lot of data that show that journalists do trend more left than right, for sure. Um, and the government's huge, right? The government's absolutely massive. So building on these truths, this became uh, this kind of argument against elites, right? The argument against the establishment. It was a lot of grievance, grievance politics. And, um, and it's important to remember that this isn't new, right? Donald Trump did not come in and start calling the press the enemy of the people. Um, that was Nixon, right? And, and, um, and his uh, vice president, Spiro Agnew, who was kind of like the, you know, I mean, he's just great for good quote. Like if you ever, you know, I just, my last book was on political comedy and that was so much more fun to write than this one um, because all I had to do like in moments of sadness was go back and read the original lines from Dan Quayle and it just cheered me up, you know? I mean, it was like, okay, good, I'm, I'm good. Um, so I was seeking out desperately something to cheer me up and, and so I would just go back to my treasure trove of Spiro Agnew quotes um, and they're, they're good, uh, they're really, really good. He had some smart dudes writing his material. Uh, William Sapphire and, um, oh, and this one from Pat Buchanan, who really is the OG of shade throwing. I mean, you know, Pat Buchanan was Donald Trump before Donald Trump knew he was Donald Trump. Um, 
He said, Spiro Agnew, written by Pat Buchanan, said that uh, newspaper editors were part of a tiny enclosed fraternity of privileged men elected to nothing. Um, and I was like, oh, that's so good. Uh, yay, you're fantastic. Um, you know, the effect though, because it, it's a slow burn, right? It takes 50 years and it builds, it builds, it grows, uh, is that it's really now, it's very hard to trust anything. Um, it makes it, you know, when you hear something enough, you know, you really believe it. And, and I see that all the time with my students. And I have some conservative students who will say, oh, I'm not, I'm not gonna use the New York Times polling data because it's liberal and it's biased, I can't trust it. And I'll say, okay, tell me why you think the New York Times is liberal, and they can't. You know, I mean, it's just sort of something, and, and by the way, they are, uh, they can be. You look at their op-ed section and it is, um, but they don't go there, they just know it, right? And, and something that I come home all the time and tell my husband, I'll say, uh, I don't know, it's like every other semester, I'll have a student who just hates Jane Fonda. And I'm like, because of her more recent work in Grace and Frankie? Like, why, why, why? She's so beautiful. Is it because you don't like women who've had plastic surgery? Why? Um, and, and it's because they've been told that she's a horrible, horrible person for what she did during the Vietnam War, which was before I was born? Like, so, so it's just this idea that they've just been told this for a really, really long time, and it takes root. Um, and the other thing is that it opens the door for an alternative, right? It opens the door for something new. And that's what, you know, Rupert Murdoch, say what you will about him, very smart man. Um, and he realized, gosh, there's something, you know, there is room here, there's room here for us, and what that means is you make a lot of money from this. And that's exactly what they did. So the second thing that happened were massive technological advancements. I certainly don't have to tell you about that because I think we all understand them. Uh, but just remember how quickly all of this happens. So uh, to put this into a kind of perspective that we can understand. Um, if technologies were people, personal broadband use would not be legal to drink, and Twitter would just be getting ready for his bar mitzvah. I mean, all of this stuff is very, very new, and it happens quickly. Um, and so now the effect of all of this is that there are so many ways to be heard. We have a flood of options, and that can be very good, and it can be very de democratizing. Um, but it also can be very overwhelming, and I don't know about you, but I feel very overwhelmed by the news and information that I get. Um, it speeds things up. It nationalizes everything, which is much to the detriment of local news, which is a huge problem. Um, and it connects and it divides us. And, and that's, again, it's a double-edged sword. Um, but it also leads to the third thing, which is that the technology also opens the door to much more money to be made in political media. And media content, like I said, it, you know, monetization rests on traffic, you know, views and readers and listeners. It just doesn't take that much to make a lot of money these days with these outlets. Um, all you have to do is attract a lot of attention. So how do you attract a lot of attention? Um, so in, on the 28th, uh, and I, I'm, I'm speaking about this now so you guys didn't just leave and come back on the 28th, my, my former boss, Brian Lamb, and um, my other former boss, Susan Swain, are gonna come here and talk about the president. Spoiler alert, he's a nut for Lincoln. He's number one. Like, I haven't even seen the book. I just wanna ruin it, just ruin, this, ruin the ending. Um, I will be coming back to see them. They are, I mean, he's been called a national treasure. Totally true. Uh, so he's amazing. Um, but C-SPAN doesn't do ratings. They don't have to because they're publicly funded. Well, they're, it's, a, it's publicly funded, sort of, um, by the cable industry. But uh, 
the reason that they don't have to do ratings and that's not where their monetization rests on is that nobody would watch them. I mean, there was actually a, uh, there was a cable provider in Florida that when you didn't pay your bill on time, they switched all of your channels to C-SPAN as punishment. <laughs> okay, don't tell Brian I told you that. It's, it's, not, it's not a great look. But, um, you know, so, so what's the opposite of C-SPAN? Cable news. Right, and so, um, so all you have to do is just sort of like turn up the volume a whole lot. And to quote the scholars from Spinal Tap, uh, you take it to number 11, right? And, and that's a good thing, but you can only take it to number 11 so many times before number 11 gets really boring. And, and so, you know, this has made for a very noisy and crowded media landscape. There are way too many voices. It has turned up the volume so that it's hard to be heard over everybody else. And it's very difficult now for people to judge information and outlets effectively. It makes it really, really tough to try and figure out, okay, what is legitimate and what is not? You know, what is fact and what is analysis? Because you'll walk through and CNN will be on, it'll be like 75 people all yelling at each other about something. And one of them will be, you know, an expert in the field, but 74 of them will kind of be random people who are just, are loud, and, uh, and so it's really hard to figure out kind of what's, what's true and what's not. And another effect of that is that trust in the media is actually even deteriorating now. I mean, just when we thought it was so low, um, there was a new poll that dropped two days ago that showed that in 2016, the New York Times and CNN were trusted 52 and 51% by Republicans who were polled, and that has dropped to 32%. Um, and it's that steady drumbeat. You know, not only do they hear from the president, like the failing New York Times, and um, you know, Jim Acosta is the Antichrist or whatever. Um, you know, these organizations, in order to capture attention, they throw shade against each other too, right? I mean, and so they say like the most trusted name in news, and, it, and it's not evil, right? It's not. It's not nasty stuff. It just is one of those things that, that happens when you're trying to garner uh, the kind of ratings that they are. So the fourth uh, and last thing that helped create this is, is the polarization that we are suffering through right now. Um, sorting ourselves into groups is called social identity theory. Sociologists came up with that, um, and, and it's a thing. Uh, we, we totally do that, right? That's how we identify ourselves. But we have turned this into the Hunger Games. Like, it's not just, it's really not just that, um, you know, that we are a whole variety of things. We, we now are lumping ourselves into kind of one thing. And the problem is that we're seeing everybody who's not our one thing as the enemy. Um, and when we do group ourselves into these kind of filter bubbles and stay within these cocoons of happiness uh, and only connect with people with whom we agree and, um, you know, don't ever hear an opposing thought, this is really deeply problematic because we not only then think like we are the only right people in the room, um, we also think that the person who disagrees with us is not only wrong or differing in their opinion, but that they are evil, right? That's where we are now, that everybody who disagrees with us is evil, right? And so the media do a lot to increase this kind of polarization. They stress the outrage, obviously, um, and they do that on purpose to make it vital for an audience to stay, right? Because you're not gonna turn on CNN or Fox or MSNBC unless there's something really big going on. I mean, think about it. I mean, some actually some people have it on 24 hours a day. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, you, turn on, you turn on cable news like when there's a big, you hear, oh my gosh, there's been a shooting. And you turn it on because you wanna see what's, what's happening. Um, and that's 
fair and that's totally valid. Well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, okay, forget even a shooting, like just the situation we're in right now, like this is, this is vital to your very existence. And if you aren't watching us, like you're gonna miss out and we're all gonna die, you know? And so we have 75 people up here are gonna tell you what's going on. <laughs> um, you know, the term actually at cable news, for cable news producers is that they want to book guests who bring the heat. That's a term of art. And they want to book people uh, who are just gonna say like the most salacious thing in the world. So, speaking of salacious, my father is here and I'm so excited because, because my dad is here, my sister's here. Um, I'm so happy. Uh, but I'm really happy to also mention, because this makes him just go, uh, uh, is that I have edited two books on political sex scandals. Um, <laughs> my dad's like, seriously? Uh, and, um, and so I was asked by, by um, I can't think of the, I, was it National, it was National Geographic. Uh, they, were bought by, they were bought by Fox, and so right after they were bought by Fox, I got a request, we're doing a special on sex. Will you come and talk about sex scandals? And I was like, I will. So I got on a train, <laughs> and I went to New York, and I had my makeup done by a man whose name was, I wish I were making this up, London Jules. He made it up, uh, <laughs> L-O-N-D-Y-N-J-E-W-E-L-Z-Z, London Jules who, um, he, you know, we're talking and he's, he's putting on all his makeup and I got up and I looked in the mirror and I was like, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, oh my God, I, I could make a lot of money tonight after I leave here. Like, I just, wow. Um, and so when, when it aired, I watched it with just devoted attention. I was like, where am I? Um, no, I'm really interested in the topic. No, where am I? And I wasn't on it. And I realized, like, wait a minute, it was a three-hour shoot. I looked like a prostitute. What was that all about? Like, I went to New York. What is happening here? And what I realized was that everything I said was too nuanced. What they wanted was, like, all men are scum, you know, and, and I just didn't do that. I was like, no, marriage is complicated. Like, it was just, it was, like, the most long-winded, even-handed, like, very nicely-toned thing in the world. And as I was watching all these other people, you know, just like saying like, yeah, yeah, and that's why, you know, Lorena Bobbitt was right. Um, I was thinking, oh, okay, well, I'll know for next time, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the, uh, the upshot of all of this is that the right-wing media circle developed uh, because of all these four things happening at once. It was this perfect storm. They all built on each other. They see themselves as providing an alternative to the mainstream media and they provide this airtight filter bubble for about 30% of the American public. And so now we are trapped in this polarization feedback loop. And, and that's really, really dangerous because it extends way beyond just news. So if you're thinking like, nah, I don't watch any of the cable stuff, that's totally fine. But imagine if I were just to you know, yell out random brand names, you would be able in your mind to think like left or right. So I'm gonna yell out random brand names and you're gonna yell back left for liberal or right for conservative. Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Nike. <laughs> Are you punking me? <laughs> left, right? Thank you, yes, left. Um, Hobby Lobby. Starbucks. Okay, see, it extends way beyond voting. It gets to, it gets to coffee. Um, it gets to, you know, chicken sandwiches. Uh, and, and so all of that is understandable, but it also feels like way too much. So um, Mike Allen, 
from Axios calls this the snap decision society, that, that now our attention spans have shrunken so much that we hear all this stuff and we're so turned up and so on, you know, on edge that we just make these snap decisions about everything else. And we are reacting emotionally instead of thoughtfully. Um, and that is a really huge problem when we're in a democracy that is predicated on deliberation and debate, right? I mean, and so that's the, okay, so that's, that's the problem. Um, and that's the bulk of the book, but uh, I was told that you should never end on a sad note. So I came up with some ideas about how we can fix this. Um, uh, okay, so here's how we fix it. One thing is um, that we need, to have, we need to have a healthy, all of us, have a healthy media diet. So I envision my media diet the way I envision my regular diet. And um, I, I just did a couple of book talks in Kansas which is a very lovely state. I'm glad I went there once. And um, it felt so good to come back again, <laughs> I swear. Um, and Kansas is really, everybody there was like super nice. But I went out to breakfast by myself and I always wanna go to like a local joint and just get like what the local people eat. The people of Kansas, give me your food. And, and so the, the local joint had their number one thing was the, it was called the big mess. And the big mess was tater tots, sausage gravy, eggs, I'm not done, ch uh, cheese, and jalapeno bacon. Now, there was a part, yeah, there was a part of me that was like, oh God, that's disgusting, I'll have that. And, um, and so I did. Uh, and now, here's the thing, is that you can't live on the big mess, right? Because it will kill you. I, think, I don't think even think you're supposed to have it like more than once every two years or something like that. It's just so bad for you. Um, so you think of the ideological, like the harsh partisan stuff as the big mess. It works on a couple levels. Um, and that's the stuff you can have it every now and then, right? That's your dessert uh, or your breakfast every, every quarter. Um, but you shouldn't rest your, your laurels on that. Instead, you should, have, you should have the vegetables and you should have the protein. Um, and that's, those are the facts because there's some great fact finding and, and journalistic endeavors out there. And so that's where you should have most of your meal. And then for like pasta and stuff on the side that's kind of a little bit more fun, that's where the analysis and commentary comes in. And, and all too often now we're doing it in reverse, right? We're having, you know, a big dessert for, for dinner and then, we, you know, and then we go backwards and that's not great. We also need to improve our media literacy, which means we have to understand where we are getting our, our facts and our information a little bit better because it's not <laughs> one of those things where if we just read it online, then it's true. Um, I had a student who I had him do, you know, big poster reports, and he came forward and he said, um, here, I found that George Soros paid all of the Black Lives Matter Matters protesters. And I said, where did you find that? And he was like, no, it was, legitimate, it was a legitimate news site. And he found it, he said, here, this is it. And he handed it to me, and it was Snopes. <laughs> and, and the entry said, Here's, here's the question, did George Soros pay all of the Black Lives Matter protesters? And the answer was like demonstrably false. No, no, but he didn't read it. He just saw it and he was like, oh yeah. Okay, okay, I see why that's a problem. I'm like, oh, we've got much bigger problems than that, son. It's much bigger than just your grade on this one assignment. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to go back, I think, to like maybe fourth or fifth grade and we're gonna start again with you. Um, and, uh, and one day he's gonna be terrific. Uh, we also have to listen to each other and increase empathy and respect. Um, and you know, there are, I found out that there are 200 organizations that will go out and help your group 
be able to listen better. And one of them is the National Institute for Civil Discourse, and there's 199 other ones who will go to your church group, your poker game, your book club. Apparently book clubs are becoming like hot places for dissent and arguments and stuff. Um, they will go there and they will help people listen. So on the one hand, that's great, there's 200 organizations. And on the other hand, oh my, there's 200 organizations to get us to listen? Like, that's crazy. That shows how much we are not listening to one another. We have to do that more. Um, we have to also increase diversity in newsrooms, and I don't just mean race and gender, although those are important. I also mean journalists have to come from different parts of the country than just, you know, I'm, look, I'm really happy to be a coastal elite, um, but I am aware of the fact that there's a whole, I've just been to Kansas, uh, there's a whole other country in the middle of these two coasts, and, and representing the folks who are there is really important, representing schools who aren't Ivy Leagues, hire my students, please, um, you know, that's really important too, getting conservatives and liberals and libertarians and communitarians and people from the Green Party. That's all really important because getting that diversity of voices can help stop this perception that the media are all, are all left-leaning. Um, we have to slow down a little bit. There's a new movement and a big debate about like subscribe to a newspaper and then of course there's pushback because the second you write something, everybody just pushes back on it. Um, one of my best friends from growing up, her father, died and she wrote a piece that made it into the Washington Post about how uh, she's a Shakespeare professor and how she and her father like learned to love each other through Shakespeare and it was really moving they, they wrote it they published it on, on Father's Day and it was so nice and a friend of ours said well that's awesome because this is probably the one thing on the Washington Post that's not gonna get like some troll pushing back on you um, and the first comment was like you're a coastal elite bitch you know, and she was, I was like, holy cat, like, this is about her dad and Shakespeare. Like, what is going on here? So we need to slow down. We need to read newspapers better. Um, and, uh, and we need to continue the conversation among all of us, which means that we need to figure out how we can ag agree with each other and disagree with each other, but without being disagreeable. Um, this is not a, you know, Politics really should not be a zero-sum game. It should be that some people win sometimes and some people lose sometimes and the next time you get back up and you, you keep trying. Um, because the goal, I think, in a democracy is for us to, to disagree and then keep on going, right? Because we have to keep on going. And um, we can't keep on going if we're just super mad at everything all the time. Uh, so hopefully people will read this, slow down, and um, not eat the big mess for their entire lives. Um, so I think we have some time for some questions or comments or concerns, and Alex is gonna run to you with yep. a... If you have a question, just raise your hand and I'm gonna run to you with the mic. Yep, starting over there. Hi, Allie. Hi. Hi. Um, where do you feel, and can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, where the role of social media fits into all this, right? So we have sure. this issue with political media mm -hmm. uh, turning mm -hmm. up the, the volume for all of us. And I, I, I mean, from where I'm sitting, I think social media turns that up even more it and does. creates even uh, stricter bubbles that, that we're all within. Uh, so yeah. um, what, what are your thoughts on, on that and where um, social media fits into this? Social media is awful and it needs to be destroyed. <laughs> um, 
that's it. Uh, thank you very much. Have a good night. Uh, no, I mean, that's, so that's not <laughs> so that's not realistic. Uh, it does allow us it does allow us to stay within these filter bubbles, and you know the evil geniuses uh, behind a lot of the social media have figured out the algorithms. Like you know, they just tweak that algorithm a little bit, and you're going to get very different news and information that just comes first. Like you can you can still find other stuff, but let's be really honest here. Like if we're not doing the really heavy lifting of reading an actual newspaper article, <laughs> then we're really not going to get on Facebook and say, you know what, I want something that's different than this baby picture. Um, and so, th so the algorithm plays a major, major role here, which kind of gets back to the, the idea that these, you know, big, big tech, the duopoly of Facebook and, and Google, they were founded when the internet was still the Wild West and there was very little government regulation. And so they don't want any government regulation, which is incredibly important to remember. And in fact, Google has more lobbyists in DC than any other organization in the country. And that is because they really do not want to be regulated. So then 2016 happens and the, you know, the Russians infiltrate social media in this big way. And so they realize like, uh-oh, uh, we got to do something. And they don't really know quite what to do. Um, the, the one, thing that I do want to push back on is, is when people say that, that these private organizations are violating First Amendment rights, like that's not true. That's actually not what the First Amendment guarantees. Um, they're private organizations. And so, um, so I, you know, the argument, I've, I've found it very interesting lately that conservatives are arguing that they are discriminated against on social media. And, and so the social media giants did exactly what the regular media, the mainstream media have done which is just get into this defensive, obsequious crouch of like, no, 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 we're not, no, we're not. We're gonna tweak our algorithm. They'll just see more of your content, which is what they've done because they don't wanna be accused of being biased. And so it's really uh, difficult. You know, I, I say to folks, if they say, you know, I just don't wanna see all the political stuff, I'll tell them my, my Facebook feed does not have any political content in it. Um, and that is because I don't read the, I've never liked or shared or clicked the political stuff, so I'm not feeding the beast. Um, you know, I got on Facebook because my students were on Facebook back when you had to have a .edu address to get on. And so I see it as a way to keep up with my students and I'll tell them, like, we can be friends on Facebook. We're not really friends. Like, I, I hope that is perfectly clear. Um, but when I see that you are getting married or you're having a baby, I'm gonna send you a nice gift, right? I mean, so that's why I'm on Facebook. Um, and Tony and I were actually talking uh, before we went on that, that we are absolutely furious at one of the guys that I interviewed for this book, uh, Tom Dunn, who works for a Republican ad firm in DC, and we're not furious at him because he works for a Republican ad firm. He did not invite us to his wedding. Um, <laughs> And let me tell you something, Tommy, uh, you, uh, by not inviting me, I'm just gonna speak for myself, Tony, by not inviting me to your wedding, because I thought we were close, um, you just got jacked out of a really good gift. So, oh, and by the way, don't put it on Facebook, okay? Because that's how we both found out. Um, so it's on us, it's on us. You know, the more we engage in the political stuff and, and write and respond and, and you know, have that sort of visceral thing, like we're feeding the beast. Um, a, a reporter for the Washington Post named David Bondrill, he's actually a, a commentator now, he said that Twitter is the crystal meth of newsrooms. I know, it's a really big statement. 
um, which I did not make. Again, I'm just quoting other people. Uh, but he's right, you know, Twitter, because of what it is, it's just sort of created this like seductive universe um, where you can really quickly react. And that's where we are. We are just, we're so fast to just hear something and then just want to react on it so we can go on social media and we can flame on somebody and we can like something or really dislike something. And, and that's, that's where the danger sort of lies because being a little bit more thoughtful and a little less emotional probably would do us all a bit of good. Question in the back? Yep. Hi, Dr. Dagman. Hi, Adam. It's so good to see you. So, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm so happy you guys are here. I want to ask a question. Um, I'm going to speak to something that you had sort of alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the leading, the, one of the contributing, biggest contributing factors to the reason we're all super mad and angry all the time is I think the general public has a very hard time deciphering between actual hard journalism and punditry. Mm -hmm. That just stating facts and someone is just giving an opinion. Right. With so many different media sources and people getting it from like social media or anywhere or their friend, how do we overcome that? Because I can't tell you how many conversations I have with coworkers or people, and they're like, oh no, so-and-so said this, and I'll say, well, who said that? And it's, you know. Tucker Carlson. Right, or something or like or that. Rachel it's, it's not yeah. coming from a. Yeah, a journalist. A journalist. How, right. do we, how do you overcome that if the general public seemingly struggles to tell the difference? Well, it's hard, and you know what? The news organizations feed on that difficulty. Um, so I, I will try and you know teach my students some media literacy, and I'll throw up the Washington Post website so they can all see it. And the Washington, you know, I grew up in D.C., so the Washington Post was my homepage because it's, it was my hometown newspaper for you know the entire time I was growing up. And I'll say, okay, let's figure out which ones are, are journalist-based, are you know, news news articles. And we'll talk about what's the difference between news and analysis, and then which ones are commentary. And man, if there aren't sometimes that I have a hard time figuring it out because they don't label them. Right, and that makes it difficult. So I asked someone, how, what is the best way to solve this problem? And they said, you know, for my, uh, you know, my vegetables and my protein, the, the, good, the good stuff that you're supposed to eat in your media diet, find reporters who are doing really good fact-based journalism and follow them on Twitter, right? And, and, or seek out their, you know, you can now subscribe to a lot of journalistic endeavors. So find the sources that you can trust and follow them. And um, make sure that you're getting your content from a, from a source that is, that is valuable. Um, when I was in Kansas, a woman said, you know, Fox News is not at all a news organization. Why don't they change their name? And I said, no, no, they are. They, they absolutely are. They, they call it the separation of church and state um, because there is a journalism-driven news bureau and then there also are the pundits who make all the money, right, and get all the attention. And so a friend of mine, Chad Pergram, is the lead Capitol Hill reporter for Fox News. And he is the most followed journalist on Twitter who covers Capitol Hill over every other news organization because his stuff is fantastic. It is so good because he works at Fox now, but he used to work at NPR and he used to work at PRI and I met him at C-SPAN. So he's a journalist first, and the reason that everybody, Democrats, Republicans, cats, dogs, um, the reason that, that everybody follows this guy is because he has never once written, tweeted, posted anything of his own opinion. He just quotes people directly, and that makes his stuff legitimate. I, you know, I have no idea if he's actually a Republican or a Democrat, not a clue in the world. 
because we don't talk about stuff like that. Um, he went to Miami of Ohio, and if you've ever met anybody who went to Miami of Ohio, those people are very serious about Miami of Ohio. I mean, they are just, uh, it's, 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 like a, it's like a religion. And he won't even, like when a sports team from Miami of Ohio wins something, he won't even tweet out, like, way to go, Miami of Ohioans. Uh, he won't even tweet out that. He takes it very seriously, and a lot of journalists do. Um, you know, anything, but the New York Times actually took the, the bylines off of a lot of their, their articles on the web pages, and I thought, don't do that. Don't do that, because it makes it harder for people to figure out what's commentary and what's journalism, they put them back on again. Because something from Maggie Haberman, like, you know that's journalism, right? I mean, you do. So, so that would be one way to go about it. They make it tough. Dr. Dagnus, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, I must be class. Uh, anyhow, um, you know, I came of age in the late 90s whenever Bill Clinton was the, the target of all sorts of scorn, hatred, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought you were going in another direction. No, no, no. Lust, well, there's that you know, too. Sexy there's time. There's that too. But <laughs> he behaved with a certain dignity. There was, there was never a time when he just went completely unhinged. I mean, you know, did you not, you know, I did not have sex with that woman, right? That's as bad as it ever got. And now, we have a guy who I don't even need to bring up Twitter right now. You know, you could read the, the newest tweet and I'm mm -hmm. sure it's gonna be suitably absurd. Is there any way back from bomb throwing? Because this guy throws bombs and he let all these guys off the chain. And there, it doesn't seem like there's any way back. He incites his followers and it just doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Um, well, I mean, you know, one of the things that, that I think folks are learning now is that there's a reward for the bomb throwing, not just from, not just from the president, but from a lot of folks, right? Um, and by the way, some do it better than others. And, uh, and I think that, that what many politicians, to their detriment, are learning is that they can't do it as well. Um, and so what my hope is, is that the moment where we are now is, is temporary, because a, l a lot of folks aren't getting away with it. And maybe we can look at, th at the most powerful person in the world and say, well, he's getting away with it, so this is it. This is gonna be the way that it happens. But he's one person. Um, and just like we're never gonna have you know, Bill Clinton again, and by the way, people have very mixed emotions about that. <laughs> when you said you know, he handled himself with dignity, I could just imagine the, the pushback on that idea. Um, um, yeah, no, no, it, but it's true, right? There's a certain there's a certain level of decorum that those a lot of those norms have shattered. Um, so, are we going to get somebody who does that again? I don't think so because I see this as being I, I don't see uh, President Trump as being the new standard for a politician. And and one of the other recommendations that I that I have is that I'm a really big fan of politicians. Um, I think politicians have a very difficult job, and we have done just a tremendous. Uh, amount of, of work in uh, just uh, throwing so many insults at politicians and saying they're all lying scum and all this sort of stuff. They're not. I mean, even the ones with whom I disagree, they're really very good, hardworking people. I mean, they are representing us. They're doing the work for us. And so I want people to vote for politicians, not celebrities. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm a middle-aged woman, like Oprah's my hero, but I don't want anyone to vote for her either because she doesn't have the experience. And so I think that as we elect more people to more offices who do have experience, 
um, and we don't reward just the shiny new thing, um, I think that, that that will taper off because, because you can't really get away with it. He's, the, he's pretty much the only one who does. At least that's, that's my hope. Hi, I want to thank you for uh, coming to speak to us tonight, and I want to thank the Midtown Scholar for yet another and Kramer really, uh, really wonderful speaker <laughs> tonight, so appreciate that. Um, I'm, I'm sort of lucky. I, I live in Hershey, and I have a moderate Republican as my state representative, Tom Mahaffey. Mm -hmm. um, a couple weeks ago, he held a town hall in Hershey with a one of his Democratic colleagues, uh, Jared Solomon from Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and it was a town hall to stop hate. Nice, um, that's fantastic. And it, you know, it was it was nice. I mean, that we had about 50 people. It was a you know very rainy night, and you know, I was hoping we'd have a bigger turnout, but about 50 people showed up. Good. Um, it, it was very clear though from the discussion that it was probably pretty much everybody was from the left, and one of uh, Tom Mahaffey's aides told me before the talk that. Uh, or before the town hall that he was getting like hate mail mm. and uh, emails and phone calls just for the fact he was holding a town hall with to stop hate with a Democrat. Yeah. He also, and Tom told me later that um, the two of them like are trying to get, you know, there's 203 members of the state house and they're trying to get others of their colleagues to join them and take this around the state and try to get a dialogue going. Mm -hmm. And they said, that as far as I can tell, they're the only two who are interested in doing this. Um, so, you know, this seems to be infecting our state politics and infecting our, you know, certainly our national politics where the congressmen aren't, you know, playing golf together or attending each other's parties right. anymore. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted you to comment a little bit on, um, you know, it's not just the public, but, you know, it's filtering all the way up to our government and it's getting impossible for compromise, and it's just, I just don't know how we can get our politicians to start, you know, getting back to the way things used to be like several decades ago. Right, well, I don't even know that it was all that long ago. Um, we're doing a really big job of othering people, um, and there's a great book by a woman named Liliana Mason that, that talks about how we got to that place in polarization of, of instead of us being, um, you know, people with myriad interests and, and differing uh, personalities and, you know, and, and differing interests and all that sort of stuff. Now we are sort of just one thing. Um, and those are called cross-cutting cleavages. So um, what Mason wrote about, and it's a really good book, I uh, it's called um, the Dis Civil Disagreements or something like that. Anyways, look her up. Um, she was saying that because we've lost the ability to see people as more than just one thing, that that kind of behavior is going to continue. And so um, I, I frequently talk about my 13-year-old my daughter. When she was in first grade, I met some of her friend's moms. And we became friendly and, um, and then became really close. And so we call ourselves the Mommy Mafia. And we, um, we have wine, um, we have uh, coffee mugs that we put wine in, say Mommy Mafia on the side of it, bedazzled. Um, and, uh, and, and the four of us are really good friends. I, I think three of the four of them are Trump supporters, I think. Um, and that's fine. Like, they know that I'm not. Um, but we're more than just one thing, right? And so they don't see me as just being a college professor who they think is, like, super liberal, even though I call myself moderate. But a comedian that I interviewed for the last book said, all you liberals think you're moderate. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. Um, so they don't see me as just one thing, right? They also see me as a mom who goes to volleyball 
games and grades papers. You know, the, it's, it's more multifaceted. And I think that if we can slow things down and talk to one another and realize that we do have things in common, then we won't have utter contempt for someone who disagrees with us about even very important things. I mean, it's important to, look, I, I'm a political scientist. I love this stuff. It's important to be political, um, but it's not important to be politicized. You know, let's leave that up to the experts. Um, and, and they're trying to feed us stuff. So if we won't eat it, then maybe they won't feed it. That sounded really good. I gotta remember that. <laughs> so unfortunately we are running out of time, uh, but we have time for one last question um, up here to your right. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, full disclosure, my mom took me to my first civil rights demonstration in 1965 in Topeka, Kansas. Oh. <laughs> so, you know. There is, nice. there is life out there. And, uh, <laughs> oh, I've no, never there's great life out there. Everybody was really, really super. <laughs> it, it can be. Um, in the beginning of uh, Morning Joe, uh, Buchanan was a regular guest on that show, mm -hmm. uh, very much so. And there was a delightful interaction. It seemed like the real uh, cornerstone of that sh show was the sizzle between Buchanan and traditional conservatism and of course, Mika Brzezinski throwing things bombs in every now and then. Mm -hmm. From the uh, from the, what happened to that? Why did it go away? Why did couldn't you hold? Why couldn't we get the sizzle in the conflict right there on one station? Um, I I guess well I'm I'm not I'm not sure that I know for sure. But here's here's a guess, and the guess would be that people are not seeking out actual debate anymore. They're seeking out, it's this uh, theory called confirmation bias, right? And so um, one of the guys that I interviewed for this, one of the journalists said that liberals love to watch Morning Joe so that they could say, well, Joe Scarborough is a conservative, so that means that I am tolerant of those on the right, so therefore I am very good and liberal, um, which actually makes it, makes the show not very conservative at all. Um, and it's not, you know, I'll, I'll watch it every now and then, and uh, it's a very anti-Trump circle that they have on there now. They really don't have anybody who's, you know, who's, who's really gunning for the side. And on Fox News, they, they do not have very many voices. I know people say, oh, they hired Juan Williams, and that's fine. They don't feature him in this really big prominent way because there isn't, that's not why people tune into it, right? And so that's, I think, one of the problems. Also, I haven't seen Pat Buchanan lately. Um, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm not, sure I'm not sure what he's up to. Uh, you know, he didn't call me after that date we had, so, you know, that was gone. Um, so I'm not, sure, I'm not sure quite what that is. You know, and another phenomenon is that so many people now on cable news are paid to be there. And there are different levels. Actually, in the book I go through, there are all these different levels. You can be a contributor, you can be an analyst, you can be a, you know, a staff member, all of this sort of stuff. So a lot of journalists now are really, they're hustling. Like journalists are really, really hustling. They're doing a lot of hard work and they're getting paid not only by being a journalist, but also by doing some outside blogging and by appearing on these shows. And there may just not be room for that kind of outside voice because it's, if you look at who's on MSNBC, if you look at who's on Fox, these are folks who are getting paid a lot of money to be there in the main. They really are. And every now and then they'll ask like one of us, you know, to come on and we don't get paid anything. We're just so excited to be there um, in order to provide sort of like an outside perspective. Um, that, that's my best guess, is that there isn't the mood to have any kind of real discussion. It's all sort of confirmation bias stuff. 
That was my best guess. Wow, I can't end it with that's my best guess. <laughs> that seems terrible. Okay, wait, can I just tell a 30-second story? Yeah, go okay, thank you. Um, okay, so uh, one of my husband's best friends uh, is this very, very tall army colonel who um, you know, is the most conservative person walking the face of the earth. And so we know, like, he and I just don't talk politics ever, ever. You know, it, 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 something will come up and I will say, oh, you know what, uh, dinner, like, you know, vegetables. How do you like that? Uh, and then we'll just kind of move it away. And so one time I asked him, I said, Jeff, if Jesus Christ came back as a Democrat, would you vote for him? And he said, well, first of all, Jesus would never be a Democrat. And I said, well, I'll be damned. And he said, you will be if you keep saying Jesus is a Democrat. <laughs> That's how I wanted to end it. Thank you so much for coming out.